1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus to save sinners. And Lord Jesus, we praise you that you were willing to pay the cost. You were willing to bear the wrath of your heavenly Father so that we could be forgiven and adopted. So Lord, help us believe with all of our heart that you are here to save sinners, that we have nothing to lose by acknowledging our sin and brokenness and everything to gain. Bless our time in your word tonight. Open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to see truth, to delight in you so that we can live a life that gives truth to the claim that the gospel truly transforms. And we ask all this in your name. Amen. Welcome to the Bible Lab, the podcast where we explore major themes from every book of the Bible in order to see how each page points us to Jesus, who he is and what he's done. I'm your host, Andy Wood, and I'm so grateful you're here with me today as we begin exploring two books at the same time. So we're going to look tonight and over the next couple of episodes at 1 Timothy and Titus. Now, these are commonly known as the pastoral epistles, so-called because they are letters, that's the epistle part, and they are written to pastors, that's the pastoral part, specifically Timothy and Titus, two men who are mentioned in Paul's writings in the book of Acts as traveling with Paul and being sort of his protégés and partners in gospel ministry. And these men as we'll talk about in just a moment, have been sent out to both plant and pastor churches. And so Paul writes these letters to them to encourage them and instruct them as young men leading congregations. But as we always do before we jump into any particular letter, we want to orient ourselves where we are historically. So the seminal event of the New Testament, the seminal event in world history, the death and resurrection of Jesus occurred in roughly AD 33. Paul was then converted a few months, maybe a year later. He then goes on his first missionary journey about 15 years later. So we're talking about 15 years of ministry in various cities, primarily in Antioch. He goes out on his first missionary journey where he plants the church at Galatia, amongst other places. Paul then has a very important council in Jerusalem where the apostles decide once and for all that God's word teaches that Gentiles and all people come into the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus and not through obedience to the law. Paul then launches out on his second missionary journey, and he meets Timothy. And so we read about Timothy joining Paul's ministry team and traveling with him. Paul then goes out on a third missionary journey, and we read about him being arrested in Jerusalem and eventually making his way to Rome. Now, this is important. When the book of Acts ends, in Acts 28, Paul is under house arrest, and it says that he's preaching the gospel to everyone without hindrance. And that's where Paul's story ends, right there. Now, church tradition, which is obviously not as authoritative as Scripture, it's not as infallible as Scripture, but we have every reason to believe that this is what happened. Church tradition says that Paul was released from that imprisonment and that he continued on in ministry for two or three more years before being arrested a second time. And it was after that second arrest, that second imprisonment, that Paul was executed right after writing the letter to 2 Timothy. So these letters, 1 Timothy and Titus, were almost certainly written in between the end of the book of Acts, in Acts 28, and Paul's execution. So just keep that in mind. So who wrote these letters? Paul wrote them, and he wrote them to Timothy and Titus. And again, he wrote them, we don't know exactly the year or the month, but we're fairly confident that he wrote these letters after he was released from his first imprisonment in Rome. We're absolutely confident that he wrote these letters before he was executed during his second imprisonment in Rome. We don't know where Paul was. Perhaps he made his way to Spain. Perhaps he was in Rome. We do know that Timothy is in Ephesus. 
and that Titus is in Crete. Now, Ephesus has been mentioned many times in the Bible, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Crete is an island, a Greek island off the coast of Greece in the Mediterranean. So why did Paul write these letters? First reason, to address certain problems in the local church regarding to leadership, money, sexual purity, how the church is living their everyday life. Second reason, to show how the gospel must shape the everyday life of believers. So Paul writes these letters not just to say no to certain behaviors, but to instruct Timothy and Titus on how to instruct their flock on what they should be saying yes to in their everyday life. And the third reason is that Paul wrote these letters to improve the health of the local church. And if you think about it for a moment, you could say that at the end of every single one of Paul's letters. He wrote this letter to improve the health of the local church. And as we jump into this first theme, just something for you to consider, if the local church was that important to Paul, how important should it be to us? But our first theme for consideration tonight is that Paul longs for both corporate, that's collective group, and personal godliness. So Paul in these letters is first and foremost concerned with the godliness of Timothy and Titus as individuals, and then downstream from that, the godliness of the churches that they led. For example, Paul gives us a really big help in 1 Timothy because he tells you the reason that he's writing. So just as a side note, if you're ever reading through a passage of scripture and the author says, I'm writing these things to you so that you should stop and pay attention. So Paul says this in 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So I'm telling you, I'm writing this so that you would know how believers ought to live. What about Titus? Titus 1.1, Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which leads to godliness. So Paul tells you in Titus, I'm writing this so that your faith will be strengthened and that you will know the truth and truth, a true knowledge, a true grasping of God's truth always accords or leads to godliness. So in both of these letters, Paul not only is encouraging Timothy and Titus towards godliness, he is comparing them or what they ought to be as opposed to false teachers. He calls out false teachers because first and foremost, false teaching leads to idle speculation. Just people sitting around and arguing about arcane points of knowledge that no one can really know, all these high-flying philosophical conversations. And false teachers' teaching leads to arrogance rather than love. As it says in 1 Timothy 1, 3-7, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons, these false teachers, not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Right? That's the aim of biblical teaching. Love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, from these goals. No, teaching should be about making you smart and making you better informed than your neighbor. No, by doing that, by swerving from these, these teachers have wandered away into vain discussion desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Lofty arguments and big words don't impress Paul. Godliness is what matters to Paul, and godliness, even more importantly, is what matters to God. So these false teachers, it's not as if they were like personally really good guys who just got a little bit too into the internet comment section. No, these men were themselves ungodly and masking it 
with a lot of biblical language. But when we look at their life, here's what Paul says we see. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords or leads to godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Paul says the gospel is not here to puff you up with knowledge. The gospel is to humble you, to tear you down so that God can build you back up and make you into the man or woman that God has called you to be. And Paul tells his own story here, not to glorify himself, but to show you, here's a great example of why God saves sinners. It's so that he can get glory and he can transform them into godly people. 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 16, Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorant in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul says, I was saved so that if there's anybody on the fence about coming to Jesus who thinks, I don't know, I've done some things, I don't know if God can forgive me, they could think, wait, didn't didn't Paul used to kill Christians? Okay, if he can forgive him, he can certainly forgive me. And that's exactly the point. Now, going back to Timothy and the false teachers, you can also see the contrast between what the false teachers are and how Paul expects Timothy to act. So Paul has called Timothy to godliness, and he said, don't be like the false teachers. And so Paul gives several practical instructions that I think we're right to see would lead Timothy to live a life very, very different from the false teachers. For example, Timothy is to pursue contentment. He says in 1 Timothy 6, 8 through 10, if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Remember, Paul just said in chapter 6, verse 7, that these false teachers are teaching, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So Timothy is told, you don't teach for gain, you pursue contentment. Timothy is also to actively pursue godliness, right? To not sit around passively, lazily, having philosophical discussions, but to actually himself pursue godliness. 1 Timothy 4, 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Train yourself for godliness. In 1 Timothy 6, 11, Paul says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Friends, just if I could step out of our current topic for a moment and talk directly perhaps to anyone who is struggling with a particular sin, whatever it might be, I heartily commend to you that you would meditate and pray over 1 Timothy 6, 11. Many of us, when we are struggling with a sin, be it lust or anger or greed or whatever it might be, we try to obey the first half of this command. We try to flee these things, right? We, we put content blockers on our phone or we whatever it is you might do when you're struggling with anger or, or gossip, but we forget about the second half. So it's not just flee these things, but flee these things and pursue righteousness. The reason we often feel overwhelmed by sin is because we haven't gone anywhere. 
I think you will find, I know that you will find, if you run hard after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness, your sin will not be over to overwhelm you anymore. So don't just turn away from sin. Turn away from sin and run as hard as you can after Jesus. That is how we make progress in godliness. To go back to our lesson, what is Paul calling Timothy to? He's been called to actively pursue godliness and contentment. Also, he's being called to be an example. Timothy is a pastor, and so the church is to look to him. And Paul says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct in love and faith and in purity. So Timothy is himself to be godly, but it's not just Timothy. Paul is also going to tell Timothy, make sure that people understand they are to be godly as well. And so Paul gives some very practical instructions covering almost every imaginable facet of life. For example, the corporate worship of the church is to exhibit godliness. Everybody is to pray. So when the church comes together, Paul says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, that we may lead a godly and peaceful, quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. But then he turns and says, okay, within, everyone is to pray, but within the specific context of the worship service, men are to be holy and to be peaceable. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. The church is not a debate hall. It's a place of worship. It's a place of prayer, of healing. It's a place where the gospel is proclaimed. What about women? Women are to be modest, 1 Timothy 2, 9, 10. Likewise, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, this comment about braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, from what we can tell, Ephesian society, this was how a woman would mark herself as either unmarried or perhaps even as a prostitute by wearing this ornate decoration in her hair. And so Paul says to the women, you're not to wear that to church because A, it's very confusing for unbelievers who look in and see this, but B, it's very distracting and immodest. As I heard one pastor say, all of us should think when we come to church, if we're trying to get attention ourselves, then we've missed the point altogether. We all want to be putting our attention on the Lord Jesus. So women are called to be modest and they're also called to be submissive. He says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, there's a lot we could say about this verse. Just a couple of comments before we move on. This is talking about, I believe, the context of the local church worshiping together. So this is not quietly in every single context. This submissiveness is to the same really as all people are to show towards the leaders that God has put over them. This is not a call or a command for all women to be submissive to all men everywhere. And when Paul says he doesn't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, she is to remain quiet. I do believe that Paul is closing the office of pastor, of elder, of, of whatever whatever your church might call it, to women. Not just women in Ephesus. I do believe this is for all women at all time. But I do think that the Bible flings open the door to ministry for women who have been gifted greatly by God. And they are, are encouraged, not just allowed, but encouraged to use the gifts that God has given them to lead, to shepherd, to teach children and other women. And as one pastor said, there's 8 billion people on the planet and around 5 billion of those people would be children, young adults, and women. You can teach every single one of them. Now, obviously, people of good faith and goodwill can hold different opinions on this verse. And so this is not a test of faith. This is not a dividing line here, but I do believe that is what Paul is teaching. So we also see godliness in sort of the institution of the church, not just the people who go, 
Elders and deacons are called to be godly. 1 Timothy 3, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Deacons who are to be the leading servants of the church. Paul says in chapter 3, they must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Widows, let a widow be enrolled, enrolled in the support roles of the church. Is the church going to take care of this particular woman? Well, Paul says, yes, if she's not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she's brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the feet of the saints, cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, then the church should be in the business of supporting these women. What about slaves and masters? of which there were probably a good deal of both groups in the church. 1 Timothy 6, 1 through 2. Let all who under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So godliness, as you can see, is connected to every single facet in life. But it's not just in 1 Timothy, Titus as well. Where do we see godliness in Titus? Well, Paul says, like from the very beginning of the letter, truth leads to godliness. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So Titus is to appoint godly leaders as opposed to the ungodly false teachers. They, false teachers, profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any work. So it's not just what a pastor claims to know, it's how he lives. The church, particularly its leaders, is to manifest a godly lifestyle. Titus 2, 1 through 10. I love this passage. Paul says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be dignified, sober-minded, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, that's stealing, but showing all good faiths so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. As the Christians in Crete go out and live in the world, they are to manifest godly living. Titus 3, 1 and 2, remind them, the Christians in Crete, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Paul wants Titus to understand and to make clear to the people that Christians should be model citizens. He wants the Roman Empire to know you have nothing to fear from having Christians. In fact, you should want more Christians because they're going to be the absolute best citizens. Hardworking, godly, quiet, encouraging, kind. That's what you want. That's exactly what you want. Now, Paul doesn't only command godliness. He anchors his charge to godliness in the gospel itself. So he not only says, go be godly, he gives us the power source for godliness. Titus 2, 11 through 14. The grace of God has appeared, 
bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And then Titus 3, 3 through 7, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, purpose clause, why did God do all this? So that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Paul understands and makes perfectly clear in these letters that you cannot separate your belief from your behavior. You cannot separate your doctrine that you say you hold from your duty to obey God, to love your neighbor in all areas of your life. The very grace of God that saves us, teaches us to say no to sin and to say yes to godliness. Friends, the the gospel opens our eyes to sin's true nature. It's vile, it's adultery, it's treason, it's a betrayal of our beloved king. And the gospel opens our eyes to the true nature of Christ. He is good and satisfying to our soul. And that is how we will motivate ourselves for godliness. It's not about, at the end, it's not about saying no to something. It's about saying yes to something. It's saying, I want so much of Jesus that sin's hold, sin's power has been broken over me. And this is what Titus and 1 Timothy teach us. Christ died to redeem us from sin, from the penalty of sin. But Christ also died to rescue us from the power of sin. He died so that we might do good works. And if a Christian claims the name of a a Christian and does not live a life of godliness, they are absolutely misunderstanding the purpose of the death of Christ. Paul's chief aim in these letters is to call all who profess Christ to live lives shaped by the gospel. Because the gospel is not just an idea to affirm or to agree with mentally. It is a reality that must shape every area of our life. And I pray for myself and for you that more and more that is exactly what will happen. That we will lead gospel-shaped lives full of love and good works. So friends, next time we come together, we're going to talk about what Paul has to say about church health in 1 Timothy and Titus. But for now, take up and read, my friends. God bless.